0: On this episode, From the Vault, Armstrong sits for a one-on-one with renowned historian Dr. Henry Louis Gates. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special edition of The Right Side with your host, Armstrong Williams. You know, I'll tell you this story um, before we introduce our guest. Many people remember the time... Uh, in 2004, when I went through No Child Left Behind. And it was really a very tough moment in my life. Um, and I will tell you, the first person to call me, the first person to call me was our guest today, out of the blue. Now, some people see me as on the right, they see him as being balanced, but more on the left. But it didn't matter about my politics. He called and he continued to call until I, he felt I was okay. And for that, I will never forget this man's heart and just what a good and decent person he is. So it's really an honor for me to welcome someone I have the just profound and the deepest of respect for Henry Louis Gates, Professor Henry Louis Gates to our platform and welcome and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. Now I'm now I'm embarrassed, <laughs> but but it's true. But it's um I, I from will never no forget that. You know, you need um it, it's hard out there and it's hard being black um, in this country and, and in the world. And, and we need each other. You know I'll tell you an important lesson I learned when I was a student. I went to Yale. I was part of the um, affirmative action the first affirmative action wave of black people to integrate Ivy League schools. Historically white colleges and universities I call them. I got to Yale in September 1969. You know who else was there? Kurt Schmoke. Who became the first black mayor of Baltimore after being a Rhodes Scholar and then going to Harvard Law School? In fact, he inspired me to want to study in England, which I did, as you know, at the University of Cambridge, where I got my PhD. Sheila Jackson Lee, Congresswoman from Houston, who has Barbara Jordan's seat, and this young. Uh, geeky pre-med dude. You know, I didn't know him very well, but let me see, what was his name? Uh, Tarson? Oh, Carson. Ben Ben Carson. (laughs) (laughs) And Candy. (laughs) (laughs) And Candy, his wife. They've been friends for a long time. And let me tell you something that I learned. Do you remember Allard Lowenstein? Allard Lowenstein was best friends of Bobby Kennedy. And he was assassinated. It was horrible. He was assassinated after Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And um, Somebody just walked in his office, man, just blew him away. And we all used to watch, uh, my partners and I used to watch William F. Buckley on Firing Line. Because he was so witty and so sp- And he went to Yale, you know, he was an old Yaley. And he used a lot of um, fancy big words. Yeah, yes, yes, you know, I'd yes, look it yes, up to see if he yes, knew what yes, he was yes. talking about. Yes. And his son was at Yale with me. Um, and yeah, I admired his son. Um, but Buckley was. Uh, Keen intellectual, and I liked the way he took on the left. He, there was a famous interview he did with Eldridge Cleaver, and they were, it was like two, two duelers, you know, with, with like a sword battle, you know, it was great, it was a, exhilarating. So, what does William F. Buckley have to do with Al Lowenstein? Opposite ends of the political spectrum. We were all shocked when Al Lowenstein was assassinated, and I remember picking up the New York Times um, and reading about Lowenstein's funeral and the person who gave his eulogy was William F. Buckley, his best friend, and at that moment I knew that the power elite was a lot more complicated than the cartoons and stereotypes that we in the black community were circulating about who was a good guy and who was a bad guy, that you had to um, be as black like me, you know, your afro had to be so big, you had to have so many dashikis in your closet, you had to learn how to say some Swahili words, or you weren't really black. Or You had to be like the Black Panthers or like the nation of Islam. That ideology was the most important thing about you. And then you look at the white power elite, the people who actually run this country. These people fraternize with each other all the time. You would see people arguing on CNN, just like Firing Line. Then they go off to dinner together. Their kids go to the same school. They get married. They play tennis together. They transcend ideology. Ideologies change. Friendships are forever. And I have never forgotten that lesson. I'll never abandon my friends. I thought you were um, not getting a, a fair deal, but more than that, I didn't even know the circumstances. I just wanted you to know that I would be there for you, and this too would pass.
0: You know, you know. On, the, on that note, because um, you're taking me to a place that I had not considered in sitting down with you, because what we're talking about now is above ideology. Above ideology. Above it. You know. Why do you think, particularly among blacks, that ad hominem attacks are so harsh against those that do subscribe to a different philosophy, whether they support a Trump or whether they support a McCain or Romney or Bush? It seems as though they see it as a betrayal of an oath now i I will tell you i don't get that I don't get the slave means I don't get the the um, the harshness. And I think it's because I do, we do have a national platform. Mm-hmm. I'm on Sirius every night. And I think as people have gotten to understand who I am, and I've been this way all my life, mm-hmm. there's respect, but there's dialogue. But yet with others, you, it's just so vicious. And I just say, why? Well, I think I can explain that. Um, I've seen you with
1: crowds. We, <clears throat> I had the pleasure of inviting you to Martha's Vineyard to our annual panel last summer, chaired by my dear friend, the great historic figure, Charlene hunter Gold. You were representing um, right-wing opinion within the spectrum, on the spectrum of black opinion. And that audience, you know, they were taking you on, man, they were standing up. By the end, you got the loudest applause. You know why? Because you took it, you responded, you were witty, you didn't take it personally. People admire that in in the black community. I think that we have a generation today that is ahistorical, and what's that mean? I don't think they understand the ideological variety that we've always had in the black community from the very beginning. I teach a big lecture course, as you know, at Harvard with my friend, the great, brilliant sociologist, Larry Bobo, Lawrence Douglas Bobo, and uh, it's called uh, African African American Studies 110, Um, Introduction to African-American Studies, what the kids call Blackness 101. And we start with the 18th century, and the whole class is built around debates that black people have had over what it means to be black. There never was one way to be black. Never. I was reading a recent... Can I ask you a question, though? Sure. Um, I think it's important for people to understand that it hurts you when you're... Attacked. That it hurts you when you're... That does bother me at all. Come on. No it doesn't. Really? Sometimes but you, when people are vicious. No. Doesn't
0: bother no. you? know, And okay. I'll tell t- t- why. Why? Well, well, you why. And, and, and I'll tell you why.
1: Protect yourself. Your uh, heart.
0: I, I've learned from being in that, in that laboratory every night of serious Radio is that people just don't know you mm-hmm. and they take you in sound bites. And I found through dialogue and discussions that people who used to um, say those things have apologized, said, I didn't know you. And when people talk about you now, you say that, they say to them, you don't know him. And so I, I give people the benefit of that. They just don't know. Mm-hmm. And when people sometimes operate out of a, a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding, they lash out. But
1: what gives you? That sense of self-confidence, you see. Because I know who I am. But that's something all of our children need to understand. You have to be rooted. You have to be centered. My parents gave me a sense of myself and my brother's sense of ourselves. Beyond, you know, you, some people say, well, you need to put Frederick Douglass' picture on the wall and Booker T. Washington and and Martin Luther King uh, uh, when your child's born in, in the nursery, right? That you have to give them black history lessons. And I do think that's true. I make my living. That's my day job, teaching African and African American studies. But more important than that is having a mother who says, you're beautiful, you're brilliant, and I'm going to be with you forever. And having a father who says that. And being nurtured in that community. No matter what happened in the world, I could always go home. No matter what happened. That gives you a lot of power. Yeah, man.
0: Yeah, it's, it's true. Your self-worth, knowing who you are, and realizing that when people really say those things, they're, they're not really talking to you. No, They're talking about some caricature That's right. that they've developed in their own brain. You and, know. It, and it's never personal. But you know, I want to come back because I, I think you've done something that is extraordinary um, with your Africa Civilization series. You, 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 Africa's history has always been tied to Europe. There has been this narrative that Africa never really had a history of its own. Mm-hmm. You're going back to these places, like Medessa and other places, to do the research. And you've come away with some extraordinary conclusions, which, first of all, even many people in this country today who call themselves African-Americans don't really understand the richness, the legacy of, the, of, of literature, right. of art, of science, of culture, of medicine that originated,
1: but we were deprived of those stories to justify, first, the enslavement of our ancestors. Twelve and a half million Africans were enslaved. David Eltis and David Richardson and their colleagues actually used shipping records, because it was capitalism, to count the slaves. So we know 12.5 million Africans were boarded on boats and shipped to the New World, and 10.8 million get off the boat, 15% died in the Middle Passage, all right? To justify that evil institution where race and class refused in the body of a black woman or a black man called a slave, they took away the dignity of our history, access to our history. And slavery, when it was abolished, was followed by colonialism. 1884, the European powers and King Leopold sat down in Berlin and they looked at an empty map of Africa like it was a pizza pie, man, (laughs) and they took a roller and just carved it it up Mm -hmm. and gave it away. You want the pepperoni? You want the sausage? You know, you want the mushrooms? What do you want on, on, on your pizza? And to do that, they had to create a stereotype of our ancestors that they were ignorant, stupid, primitive, static, there was no development, no movement in Africa. Hegel said that, Hegel, George Hegel said that in an essay called The Philosophy of History published in 1837. He said Africa is the land of the undeveloped, that there was no movement, which means if we were in a time machine and went back to 1000 AD or 1000 BC, our ancestors, they said, were living the same basic life in a mud house, you know, hoeing with a dirt floor, herding uh, some animals or, or whatever, that, that, that we had contributed nothing to quote unquote civilization. This is not true. And even more alarming and more fascinating Armstrong is that Europeans knew that. The example I like to cite is the young Cosimo de' Medici, whose mentor, he became the Duke of Tuscany. In the year about 1600, his tutors prepare a summary of world leaders. This is about the time Shakespeare is writing Hamlet. And on these world leaders, Queen Elizabeth I, you know who else? Um, King Alvaro II, the King of the Congo, the King of the Mutapa Empire, and the mythical king of Ethiopia, Prestigeon, They knew about the European world. African kingdoms like Congo, Ethiopia, they sent ambassadors to the Vatican and to other courts in Europe. They sent their kids to be educated. The king of Congo converts to Roman Catholicism in 1491, then sent his son Enrique to Portugal to be educated. So he comes back. And the Vatican makes him the first bishop in the Congo in 1517, power move on the king's part. They knew each other. They dealt with, with each other as equals, not in the subordinate way that we were led to, to believe. When I was growing up, we thought nothing good, complicated, interesting had come out of Africa because that's what we were taught. We thought that Africa was Tarzan. Africa was Sheena and Ramar of the jungle and it's just not true. They took away our history. And you don't have to be a black nationalist um, to believe this. This is just the way it was. There was a queen, Amani Renus. Amani Renus beat the Romans in 24 BC and then had, she was the queen of Meroe, which is Nubia, which is north of, the, the, um, of Khartoum today, right, in a battle with the Romans who were trying to take over her kingdom. She not only defeated them, but then her emissaries met on the island of of Samos with Augustus Caesar himself. And they negotiated the treaty. And by the way, after the battle, she confiscated a statue, a bust of Augustus Caesar, and had it buried back in her kingdom, right in front of her throne, so everyone who came to see her had to step on his head. (laughs) As a man who, in African history, reminds me of you. According to NetWorth.com, the last time I checked was about 30 days ago, the richest man in history was a black man, Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa was the king of the Mali Empire. Man, Most of us don't know that most of the gold that Europe received between 1,000 and 1,500 came from West Africa, and he controlled the gold. He was the king, and he was a Muslim. 1324, he made a pilgrimage to Mecca. And he took so much gold, he took 10,000 slaves with him. Some counts 10,000, some some counts 12,000. On camels, made their pilgrimage, 1324, 1325. He had so much gold when he went through Cairo, it devalued the gold market for about 10 years. He was a bad dude, and he is still considered to be the richest man in the history of the world. Net worth, $400 billion. Bill Gates looks like he's on welfare next to Montemus.
0: <laughs> well, we'll take his welfare. <laughs> you, you know you, you, what? you're really doing, you, you're really capturing here a 200,000 year journey and the grandeur and the millennia and, and, the, and the wars and, 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 and the famines to where we are today. Yeah, and, and there were,
1: look, it's not only about good guys, yes. there were bad guys. Yes. The African elites, merchants that were complicit in the slave trade. You know, the image that we had, the white people showed up and your ancestors and mine were out on a picnic one Sunday and some white man jumped out of the bushes and throws a net over they end up on a plantation in Mississippi. It wasn't like that, man. It was big business. It was big business. My colleagues at Boston University, John Thornton and Linda Haywood, they say 90%, at least 90% of the Africans enslaved were the result of other Africans who captured them in wars or kidnapped them or bargained for them or something and then sold them to European factors along the coast. The slave trade was enormously complicated. There were no good guys. It wasn't like all our ancestors were um, innocents and the evil white people showed up. There were two sets of evil people who were capturing other human beings and shipping them to the new world for great economic profit.
0: What, what happens in futuristic uh, when many on the continent of Africa really come full circle with their full potential, unleash their human capital, wow.
1: unleash their economic engine. Africa will be back, man, and it's going to come. It's going to come. You, you, know, you believe that renaissance has come? We are still recovering from the Congress of Berlin. We are still recovering from all those years between 1884 and roughly, well, Sudan becomes independent 56, Ghana 57, 17 African nations in 1960, the year I turned 10 years old. We're recovering from that period of total suppression and repression by European colonial governments. The only places that were untouched, though they were affected indirectly, were Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Ethiopia which has been independent for a zillion years. Do you know that Ethiopia, the king, King Azana, converted to Christianity in 350 AD. The third nation in the world, after Rome and Armenia, to convert to Christianity was Ethiopia. Who knew that? But it's true. And when we realize our lost glory, here's what my goal is. My goal is to have the contributions of people of African descent, a normal part of the school curriculum, because that's where your attitudes really are shaped. You know, I love Black History Month. Carter G. Woodson, Harvard man, um, PhD 1912. He created um, Negro History Week, which became you know Negro History Month and Black History Month. We all, all know that. And as important as that month of February is, the month we're in right now, that's not how you naturalize information into the curriculum. When I started elementary school in 1956, my teacher didn't say today's civics day, I'm going to teach you how to be an American. They said my country tis thee, sweet land of liberty. They said America the beautiful. George Washington um, ch- cut, chopped down the cherry tree and never told a lie. All those facts and myths and stuff just were told to us as a normal part of the school curriculum. I want Amani Renus's victory of the romans in 24 bc i want Mansa musa's pilgrimage to mecca i want the existence of the black pharaohs of the nile between about 750 bc and 656 bc the 25th dynasty i want every child in america to know that and not to think that it's extraordinary or special i want him to know about the history of the world i want him to know about frederick Douglass. i want him to know about booker t washington i want him to know about george washington carver and i don't want him only knowing about it in the coldest, darkest, shortest month of
0: the, of the year, which is February. You know, when people listen to you talk about black history, it's not at the expense of your white brothers and sisters. Talk, I mean, because you have built and sort of forged some of the best relationships. You just believe, without minimizing anybody or marginalizing anybody, you just feel there's just been a void in the history of Africa being told in the world.
1: When we in the 90s fought for the equality of African-American literature. And the people on the right, people who were very conservative said, you're trying to get rid of Shakespeare. You're trying to get rid of Milton. No, only an idiot would try to do that. My argument is there are forms of excellence in thought, in art, in literature, just as sublime as any that you'll find in in the Western tradition, in the European tradition, in the tradition, quote unquote, of white people that we have to understand our geniuses too, that we have black genius. And all we want them to do, move over a little bit. I want to integrate the canon. To paraphrase Jesse Jackson, I'm a canon maker, not a canon breaker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the stereotype of affirmative action is that it is letting uh, inferior people into places that they don't deserve. Yale, Ben Carson, Sheila Jackson Lee, Kurt Schmoke, inferior, what, to whom? Yale had a strict racist quote on the number of black people. Look at your um, your franchises—I don't know the proper word is—but for your, uh, your, in your television re- broadcast stations. Yes, your stations. There were 50 years ago. That was impossible. 50 years ago, why? Because because there weren't smart black people. Black people smart enough to do? Of course not. There, of course there were black. The people opportunity. Smart. Opportunity. There was a white-only sign on in the
0: media world. I want to say this in, in the close. What would your parents think of you today if they could just? If they could just see their extraordinary success, the lives you've enriched, and how you're willing to just put it all on the line to tell the story of the ancestors. You know what my
1: parents would be most concerned about? They would be concerned about how I interacted with the people I grew up with when I go back to Piedmont, West Virginia. The one thing that would have embarrassed them, they would have stood by me no matter what, but if I went back acting Siddiqui, putting on airs, they would, have, they would have said, Skippy is what they call me. You have embarrassed us. You know, you never forget where you, where you came from. And I would like to think that
0: um, I've honored that, that value, that principle. Professor Gates, it has been a pleasure Thank you, brother. and an honor to have you in our house, our broadcast house. Keep, keep up the great work and keep representing us, you know where. And you'll do the same. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Armstrong Williams. you for
1: tuning in to this week's episode.